You guys get to hear me talk about a lot of different aspects of working with aggression in dogs. And none of that would be possible without learning from so many incredible trainers over the years. I'm definitely standing on the shoulders of giants. And one such giant in our community is Sarah Kallnice of Blue Dog Training. Sarah and I chat about a number of interesting topics during this episode, including building trust and rapport with our clients and why that's important, as well as some interesting cases we've experienced over the years, and also discuss a tragic case that recently occurred with a pet sitter in Texas that you might have seen in the media. So I hope you're able to gain some nice takeaways from this episode with the always insightful Sarah Kallnice. If you are enjoying The Bitey End of the Dog, you can support the podcast by going to aggressivedog.com, where there are a variety of educational opportunities to learn more about helping dogs with aggression issues, including the upcoming Aggression in Dogs Conference happening from September 30th through October 2nd, 2022 in Providence, Rhode Island, with both in-person and online options. You can learn more about the Aggression in Dogs Master Course, which is the most comprehensive course available anywhere in the world for learning how to work with and help dogs with aggression issues. Hey everyone, I've got a real special guest this week, Sarah Callnice, who's been working with dogs professionally for over 20 years and is the owner of Blue Dog Training and Behavior in Madison, Wisconsin. She's a certified professional dog trainer through the CCPDT and a certified dog behavior consultant through the IAABC. Sarah is on the board of the Companion Animal Sciences Institute is recognized in the state of Wisconsin as an expert witness in dog training and behavior and has run a dog rescue organization for over 20 years. Sarah graduated with honors from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, studied comparative cognition between dogs and dolphins through the Kiwalo Basin Marine Mammal Laboratory in Honolulu, Hawaii, and was a member of the lab's humpback whale research team. A popular speaker since the release of her Language of Dogs and Am I Safe video series, Sarah has given more than 100 seminars across the U.S. and internationally to dog training organizations, veterinary schools, dog breed clubs, and rescue shelter groups. Sarah and her husband, Andrew, an engineer, work together with their six dogs to create training tools for professional trainers and dog owners. The most well-known of those tools is the Dog's Safe Hands-Free Leash System. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to be jumping into this because um, I think we're going to just have a general conversation. We were talking before the show, leading up to it, kind of like, what should we talk about? Because there's so many things we could talk about. And I was like, why don't we have a show just talking about aggression in general and our unique experiences? Because we both have been working with aggression cases for a long time. And I thought it would be kind of nice to talk about some of the experiences and, and share those with the audience and maybe some of the not so nice cases that we've had. So we can certainly talk about the more severe cases. But one of the things that we had kind of discussed ahead of time was building trust and rapport with our clients before we even jump into the actual getting information about the aggression case, because it's a, a real important aspect of working aggression cases is the people. So expand on that. Like, how do you build trust and rapport with your clients to get them on the same page as you and have that conversation with them? You know, one of the things that I've done over time that is I've thought about changing over time, but ever it, it just never has worked out for me is when a call comes in, I return that call. I speak to that client myself. I've tried to have people answer calls and return them for me. And I understand that that would make me much more productive. But the first part of building a relationship for me is that initial contact, that initial phone call, that time to talk to the client, get to know them, what they're like who they are, what's important to them, and to give them an idea of who I am. I mean, it turns into about 99% of the people that I talk to actually book a consultation. So I, I certainly don't view it as a waste, but I also view it as a moment that I can educate someone so that even if they don't book with me, they know sort of what to look for, what not to look for. You know, what is it with all this stuff? They often say, you know, I went on Google and I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. So I find that I'm so passionate about what I do. I love it so much that it gives me that opportunity to, to just build a little trust and steer them in the right, what I consider to be the best direction for them to go, even if they don't book with me. And building that trust to be able to say, here, I'll tell you, you could go to this person or that person or this veterinary behaviorist and have them know that I'm okay 
right? I want to help you and I want to work with you. But if you decide to go another way, that's okay too. And I'm going to tell you the different places you can go. That right off the bat builds a huge amount of trust, which is important. It's absolutely important. What do you think some of the reasons for, or you've learned over the years of why it's so important? So, so for maybe some of the newer trainers listening into the show, what are some of the reasons why you found it to be so crucial to start with that? Oh, there's so many. A lot of times when they come to us, they've already seen some other people. They might've tried a class. They might've tried this person or that person or this technique and that technique, and they might be getting frustrated and they often are already. And so it's super important to build that rapport so that they will feel like they can open up to you. They can really open up to you, tell you what they've tried, tell you what hasn't worked, tell you what's frustrated them, give you a really good idea of where they're coming from. But also, and critically, if you're dealing with aggression, you need them to know they can be honest with you. They can share anything about what's happened. They can tell you that they got really angry one night and kicked the dog if that's what happened. And I say, you know what? That's okay. That is absolutely okay. You are human. Tell me the things that have happened you can be 100% honest with me. It's going to be best for you. It's going to be best for your dog. And there will be no judgment. And that is the best place you can start. But you need to make people feel safe and comfortable. And you need to really mean it because it'll come across if you don't. You need to get to that place. Absolutely. And you mentioned that safe word there, which is the word safe in, in a sense that we also have to keep ourselves safe and to open the conversation with the client to get them to be truthful for us. It's that rapport is, is what's going to really establish that sort of unwritten rule of I need the truth. I need you to tell me what's going on in this case. And can you speak more about that in terms of our own safety and why we would need that? Yeah. So, you know, when I was first starting out, I didn't spend the time that I do now talking about background and specific incidents and what does it look like? I often say, what's what's the worst thing your dog has ever done? What's their worst day? What's the absolute worst, the, the most aggressive you've ever seen them? I need to know those things. I need to know how are they inside the house? How are they outside the house? How are they? I want to know all of that. So because I decide, am I going to go to them? Are they going to come to me at my office? I don't so much let them choose, I decide where we're going to meet. Where is the best place? Where's the safest place? That's incredibly important because early in my career, I didn't do it and I paid the price a few times and I don't want anybody listening to pay that price. So I, I would prefer you learn from my mistakes and we can talk about some of those situations of knowing that you have to ask second and third level questions. It's not as simple as, Mr. Potential Client, Mrs. Potential Client, has your dog ever bitten? No. Okay, check, next box. That's not the stopping point. That might be the starting point. Or frankly, Michael, even it's a question that I almost never ask. I don't say, has your dog ever bitten someone? Because you know, and I know, that bite means a whole lot of different things to a whole lot of different people. So they could say yes, and it turns out that to you, that's a uh, maybe it was a threat or not even a threat. Maybe they they just don't understand the body language of the dog at all. Or maybe it was much worse than they thought. No matter which way it ends up being wrong or that you misinterpret the information, you are putting your own self at risk. Spending that time and building that rapport on the front end, it's been years, knock on wood, everybody, since anything has happened to me that you know, felt completely unforeseen. I did not see it coming. I, coming, I didn't ask the right questions. It's been, it, it just doesn't happen if you take that time. And it could, anything can happen. You have to keep that in mind, but it could. Absolutely. And so I think as I'm getting into my listeners' heads right now, if I could do that, <laughs> they would be, some, some of the listeners might be asking, okay, from a time management standpoint, yes, we want to talk get as much information as we can ahead of time. In this day and age of Zoom and online scheduling forms like Acuity, where you could literally just schedule everything, soup to nuts, get payment, get the contract signed before you even talk to the client, like no actual conversation at all. Do you think there are workarounds given modern technology? Like, would you recommend always meet the first time on Zoom so you can build that rapport before you even meet the dog for that safety aspect and for all of the other things you were talking about? I, oh, oh boy, this may not be a popular answer, but I don't 
and, 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 and again, it might just be a comfort and an age thing. Um, I don't find Zoom very helpful. For certain things I do, but um, for aggression cases, I'm fine talking to them on the phone. I almost find that seeing someone face-to-face can be a little bit more intimidating and that there's a certain comfort in anonymity that a client gets mm. that they're not going to have if you're staring them right in the face. And, you know, maybe you do have a moment where they say something that you weren't expecting and you shift just a little bit. I don't know about you, but I've become very good at reading human body language over the years. And I don't know that I want to expose them to that. I'm more concerned about them than myself. But, you know, we're we're all human. So I don't think I would ever do that via video. I like phone for that. I like the good old telephone. And what I've started to do because of time management and because of the sheer numbers of clients that are coming in is that I will do a mini consult. So I charge $25 for 30 minutes on the phone. And basically it is that that call, that information gathering call. And then if they do book the consult, that $25 goes towards the mm-hmm. consult fee. And so, you know, if they don't book, They've only spent $25. If they do book, it was a call I would have done anyway. So I'm still having some income. And I just feel so much more comfortable knowing that I know personally what I am dealing with. Yeah, you know, some interesting points you make there. And it makes total sense, you know, in terms of if that's your best conduit to building that rapport, you know, you should work with what makes sense to you and what you're used to doing. Because I know some trainers that are totally uncomfortable being on the phone, but oddly enough would like to do a Zoom consult. So yeah, it's it's interesting to hear the different differing viewpoints. And some trainers book everything completely without ever seeing the client. And the first interaction is through a Zoom call after everything's been paid for and signed. And and so, yeah, it's it's interesting to hear that, the different unique aspects and how much they can play into you know the work we're doing. And I feel like you could do that I think I would still do the initial phone call always, even in the future, just a phone call, just to lower that that level of discomfort, potential discomfort. But after that, if we, it depends on your business model, right? So mm-hmm. my behavior consultations tend to be almost three hours long after that. And so that initial consult, we're doing what is the issue that's going on? What is the prognosis for that issue? And what's the behavior modification plan? And so I don't do a lot of, you know, one hour sessions. We do one big session and then we have them work and then we do a follow-up session. But I can see a time where I potentially would split that and put more of the, I have this initial phone call, then we do something on Zoom that's really more about us face-to-face, right? Me and the client, the client and I, and then the dog person-to-person. Because here's where I fall. I have done a couple of training or behavior consultations at the beginning of the pandemic on Zoom, and I'm either seeing the people or I'm seeing the dog, but I'm not seeing the context and you can't, I can't control what setup they have. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times the lighting is really bad. The sound is very poor. And I feel like I can't, if I'm not in the presence of a dog, I might have some idea of what's going on, but I can't really, it feels like I'm missing things mm-hmm. if I'm not in the room with the animal. But there's a certain part of it that I could certainly do over Zoom, which would be fine. Yeah. And I'm happy you're bringing in that viewpoint of it as well, because I've had guests that they do everything through Zoom, and that's kind of what their niche is, so they're very good at it. So um, it's good to hear different perspectives on what works and what's not working and the pros and cons of each format. So I would love to shift gears here, and you and I were chatting also about another case, it's a very severe case that recently happened in Texas where a pet sitter had gone to a home and was bitten on the face and really mauled by the dogs. And the story is, from what I read, is that this pet sitter had met the dogs before, but had gone to the home a second time to actually watch the dogs. And that's when she was attacked and pulled into the home. And the reason that she was actually uh, able to get out of that is because the door alarm, I guess the door was left open and the door alarm went off. And that's when the paramedics or the, the police went out first, but they couldn't even get into the home because the dogs were basically using aggression to keep them out of the home. So we should probably talk a little bit about our experiences there, you know, because I think that'd be helpful for the listeners to hear about uh, the more severe but less common attacks, because many of us as trainers and consultants are going to see, you know, if I was going to use a word, average case. So 
most dog bites are not happening at that degree. We can agree upon that. Absolutely. And most are on the lower end. And so most of us as trainers are going to see in our caseload a the high percentage of those types of cases, we might not see this kind of case or um, similar cases. Uh, and we can also jump into your work as an expert witness as well, and we can kind of talk about that. But um, thoughts on that case? I know you read about it, so um, just kind of top of mind, what's what's swirling around in your head about that case? You know, I, I actually just heard about this this morning, so I don't know where I've been, but um, there was a follow-up with the person uh, or the case or where it mm-hmm. was uh, on on the news. So I, I only heard about it today. And it really, I mean, it's it's so sad. It's heartbreaking, but it's it's fascinating to me because it really doesn't make any sense. So you know, we obviously, we don't have, I don't have all the information. You don't have all the information. But if what we know is that she met the, this is a a young woman who met the people, the dog owners at their home and met the dogs once, and they were described as quote, perfectly lovely. And then she went back to do her job when the owners weren't home and the dogs were not crated and they met her at the door and this ensued. So where my mind goes is what was the trigger, right? There's always a trigger. There's always something that dogs don't attack for no reason. So was it both dogs or was it one? We'll probably never know if, you know, I think she had over 800 bites. I mean, we're talking about an incredibly serious attack, but my mind just went to, is this, um, were the dogs actually really lovely that first time or did both the owners and the young pet sitter not realized that the dog's behavior was not perfectly lovely. So that was one place that my mind went. The other place was body language. And it's why body language is so important to me. You know, did they not recognize it, but also had there been previous aggression that the owners were just completely unaware of because many times people don't know what aggression looks like at sub-threshold levels, you know, until it's the straight-on growling, snapping, snarling, biting Cujo dog, right? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. So uh, I also did want to preface this by Sarah and I are just giving our opinions on this case, and by no way are we making any statements (laughs) on what happened. Uh, And that's important for all cases that you might read about in the media. You're getting information about just little bits of what have been witnessed and it's not always true. And, you know, media reports are certainly not always right. going to be the most accurate of bit salt. of information. So yeah, just wanted to mention that because we could see, we often see that on social media, a dog bite case makes the media and everybody's giving different opinions or and kind of assuming things that may not have happened in the first place. So very important point. And you also made another very important point is that we don't always know which dog it is. Sometimes one dog is blamed and it's the other dog, or maybe there was other dogs involved. Sometimes it's not even the dogs that were in the home. I remember talking to Jim Crosby about a case where it was like everybody assumed it was a certain group of dogs, but it was a completely different dog that did all the damage. Um, So, um, you know, in some of the expert witness work I've done too, certainly one of the common factors is lack of awareness of body language and signaling. But that being said, you either have some history of aggression or some somebody's witnessed it in another context in many of those cases. And so you have other witnesses brought in and things like that. But in this particular case, it doesn't sound like it. Now, that could be completely wrong. We don't have the information. But, you know, past behavior, as they say, is a good predictor of future behavior. So as you mentioned, yes, they met once. But what does that look like? Was it somebody, you know, you can meet a dog in a crate, right? Dogs in a crate and you're outside, you're not going to get bitten. And the dogs might seem lovely, um, or they might be on a leash or behind a door or something like that, which is preventing anything from happening. So it could look okay, but it may I mean, though, in 20 20 years of doing this, um, I have never seen a case where a dog bites or attacks that severely, or or even does a, a really significant bite where there's truly no history of any aggression. I have mm-hmm. never seen that perfectly lovely dog in any context, regardless of this situation, where it's a dog that really has never done anything in their first incident with aggression is incredibly severe. Have you seen that? I actually have. And it's interesting you asked that. I just uh, was made aware of a case uh, just a couple weeks ago, I'd gotten back from a, a workshop and one of the attendees um, 
showed me the pictures from the scene, and it was a horrific attack. It was it was awful, and the experience. I'm sure the trauma this person experienced must be profound. And、uh, I can certainly, you know, empathize with that. Seeing similar cases of that severity, the impact on everybody, including the victim, can be very severe. So this dog was adopted to this person from a shelter, and spent—I don't recall the exact amount of time, but it wasn't just a few hours or a few days. It was at least a few weeks, if I'm not mistaken, even maybe a few months. This dog had. No signs. The shelter staff has a behavior educated team. They evaluated the dog.、Uh, this person adopted the dog. Spent several weeks to maybe several months in this person's home. And one night, this person wakes up and the dog is latched onto her head, the top of her head, not letting go. So that person doesn't know what happened, but that person woke up with the dog latched on to the top of her head, not letting go. So severe、okay. bite injuries. So here's where my mind goes. Sorry, this is、mm-hmm. the second you say that, right? So the dog was adopted from a shelter.、Mm-hmm. How old were they? The dog. The dog. I don't quote me on this, but definitely not adolescent anymore. So social maturity. Okay, social maturity. Three, at least three years old. But I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. So,、uh, but I, I, from what I recall,、um, we had gotten past that adolescent stage. So we don't know, right? That the dog hadn't had a severe. Aggression history or episode or episodes of aggression、mm-hmm. before it ever came into the shelter, right? Correct. Which is kind of what I guess my belief is that that dog probably had something that happened, and you know we know I I have an, a behavior assessment quote temperament test process that I use, and I think it's important that those things exist. Not so much as pass fail, but as who is this dog? Who is this individual? Getting to know that dog, but I still feel like there's there's space for that, right? Something might have happened, and the temp test, everybody, all of us, might might have missed it, and then the dog gets comfortable in the home. What do you think about that? Absolutely. I mean, sure. This sometimes we can miss things in cases because we don't always replicate the same. Antecedent arrangements from a shelter environment to a home, right? So right. you take you take a dog that,、uh, and it can work opposite ways too. You know, like for the examples, the resource guarding、um, study that was done, where he's showing dogs that are have a higher prevalence of resource guarding. You send them to home, you do nothing. You just you do no training or any other changes. The dog's resource guarding dissipates in the home just because of the change in the environment. And so similarly, we might see the dog not displaying any aggression in the shelter environment just because we haven't replicated the context in which. So we haven't. Put a comfy bed,、uh, you know, a human bed inside their kennel,、Absolutely. and maybe they have a strong history of guarding the bed or something like that. But this case particularly struck me as one of the rare cases where I think it's just really unpredictable in the sense of any behavior team or professional looking at the dog is not going to reasonably be able to predict this is going to happen. And we can again speculate, you know, was it a,、um, a seizure related disorder or、uh, or something neurological going on or post traumatic stress type of、uh, behavior issue that that occurred in that case? We could speculate all day long, but、right. it is one of the cases where, I, you know, it's just. That is a it's so、eminent. rare. It's yeah, a rare、absolutely. case because the attack was horrific. I mean,、um, you know the pictures and and the the story behind it and everything this person had to go through to stop the attack was just、um, very uncommon.、Uh, but it is you know since we're on the topic of these more severe、yeah. cases, it's it's kind of it's interesting to talk these things through. You know, and I think that it's really important for people to understand. I mean, you're talking about two individuals here. Michael and I, who specialize, have seen aggression cases for many years, and even between the two of us, I would bet that these types of cases are an incredibly low, incredibly low percentage of what we've seen. So I don't want people to walk away thinking, "Oh my gosh, should I be more afraid of dogs than I am?"、Right. I don't think that's what we're talking about at all. If anything, you know, I'd like to say this: this is incredibly, incredibly rare, and the majority of the time, you're going to see signs that something is amiss before、mm-hmm. anything happens, much less anything incredibly severe.、Um, yes. 
Right. So yes. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I don't want people to run away. And I I say that all the time in my seminars. I'm like, vast majority of dogs are not going to bite you. And the vast majority of dogs, when they do bite, are not going to bite you very severely. So the real rare cases like that, you have a much better chance of, you know, getting severely injured or killed by a vending machine. Right. Right. So it's, uh, it's important to note that, but it's, I think, you know, again, important to talk about these more severe cases so we can get a better understanding of what's happening and, and what happened. So, so, can you think of any other cases recently in your caseload? Or maybe we should go back to that one and p- unpack that the pet sitter case a little bit more, because I think there's going to be a lot of questions about that uh, as it goes along, because again, there's not a lot of history, but we can reasonably suspect that there was some history of aggressive behavior directed at strangers. It's just that the dogs never had an opportunity to bite. And I'm saying this based on the videos that you sent me a link to, there was a TV interview and based on the observations of the dogs that I was watching in those videos. Again, it's contextual. So sure, if you put a dog in a tight space and you get somebody with a camera approaching the door, you might see certain reactions. But they did show videos, uh, body cam footage from the first responders, which was giving a lot of information. So I mean, it took them over, you know, 30 minutes to get into the house because of the Mm -hmm. dogs and the way they were behaving. So, you know, when I thought about it, I mean, I thought, so part of the thing is they they had a sign on their door. The owners had a sign on their door that said, like, crazy dogs live here. And that was going to be used in the case. And, you know, I don't know if that's the truth. But if that's the truth, I think that's a little silly, that part. Because how many people do you know that put, I mean, you know, the cute signs with the mm-hmm. crazy dogs live here. Yeah. That's very different than warning guard dog on the property or, you know, that sort of thing. So that was, I don't, if I were consulting on that case, I would tell that attorney, me personally, I would tell that attorney, that's not really that important. I don't think, I think you Mm -hmm. need to be looking for other things in the history to see if they're there. But if there's nothing, I keep thinking, okay, well, the dogs are at home alone. The owner was supposed to have them crated. She messaged the pet sitter, supposedly, this is all what I'm hearing on the media. So again, grain of salt. She didn't have them crated. So was that a context that they weren't used to, that they didn't have any exposure to, a stranger coming to the door where they're not in the crates? Did that drive one of them over threshold? And then did the other join in? Because that increase in arousal is often contagious between dogs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the dragging her from the door, I'm sorry that this is a little graphic this moment. I'll keep it PG. But the moving her from the door into the living room, reminded me of a case that I had quite a few years ago with a a Rottweiler, young male Rottweiler, um, breed unimportant to me in this scenario other than big or small. (laughs) But it reminded me of that and that, you know, could it be guarding? Could it be, you know, there could be multiple issues going on, right? But it doesn't seem like it would be, I, I know people have said to me, do you think it was prey drive? I don't, I, I guess I'm not seeing anything that makes me feel like there was a prey drive scenario or context there. What do you think? Yeah, it's. I think that's an over assigned label to many of the dog bite cases uh, because of that predatory motor pattern appears like prey drive to the casual observer, right? So the eyes, right. dog chase, grab, bite, pull the victim down kind of behavior pattern. All dogs are capable of that particular motor sequence, it's just that we're seeing it in some of the aggression cases and it's automatically, oh, that looks like chasing something that the dog wants to kill or, or you know, take down. So yeah, I, I would say it's a little over prescribed. Um, I do think that, you know, You're when dogs, kind. yeah, <laughs> I think when dogs are intent on doing harm though, they're going to, you know, escalate and and in your work with expert witness cases, I'm sure you've seen the same thing. A lot has to do with not only provocation, but also the persistence of the animal, the dog, to get to that victim. So it's going to be a different type of case if a dog sees somebody walking down the street and smashes through a six-foot stockade fence, breaking their tether to chase that victim down the road and bite them, versus somebody jumping over the fence and getting into that dog's face on their property. So, you know, the level of effort by the dog to actually make that bite happen. That's the the extreme that we're looking at here. So we might, you know, again, it could be mislabeled prey drive or some sort of predatory behavior, but it's more so that dog is making a 
heavier effort. It's pull. It's not pulling its punches. It's throwing hard punches and it's throwing combos in a way. Right. Absolutely. Uh, with the same with the same goal of you know eliminating that threat or increasing distance, but in the sense of with dogs that are looking to eliminate the threat, they're still accomplishing that goal of ceasing that threatening stimulus. They're preventing it from going any further. And so one of the things that I think about and that this made me think about was how much I wish that for pet sitting or grooming or Mm -hmm. police officers, all, all the different areas of this world in which people might or regularly do um, have to engage with dogs or go into people's homes, that they have some sort of required training to understand a dog's body language so that they don't inadvertently or unconsciously trigger a dog. So, you know, I'm envisioning a a potential scenario, again, I have no idea, where this young girl goes to the door, the dogs are not crated, She's met them one time. They may have been giving lots of distance increasing signals. She might not have seen them. She might not have heard them if the door wasn't open yet. But maybe she opens the door and, you know, she smiles and makes direct eye contact and says, oh, hi, you know, to the dogs. And that is the trigger. You know, the owners aren't there. There's no confinement. And they're being presented with a trigger stimuli in a way that they haven't been presented before. So I feel like somehow as a society, we need to do a better job. And, and then sometimes when I, when I feel that way, I think, but how can we really? Though I would encourage, you know, if you are a dog professional, I do lots of presentations for energy companies and police departments and schools and vet tech programs and vet schools and make yourself available. If, if people are not inviting you to speak, let them know you're available to speak on keeping yourself safe around a dog because it can make a huge difference. It can, it really can make a huge difference. Yeah, it certainly can. And it's the, really the number one aspect I teach professionals, you know, so the trainers that are working with cases, how to avoid the dog bites. The first and foremost way to do that is being able to read the dog. So reading the body language, if you can see what the dog is communicating in the most, even in the most subtle ways, and then even in the more subtle ways that when you start really looking at these cases, it's the best way to avoid a dog bite. Um, again, I empathize for the victim in that case and hope that person heals well and, and as best as can be because it's, you know, not only is it physically obviously scarring, it's emotionally damaging and we can hopefully help to avoid that by again, that education component, the body right. language component, you know, you know. What that, was that, a wonderful thing to see was um, that at the end of the story, you know, her family has two dogs, mm-hmm. and there was footage mm-hmm. of her. Because I was thinking when I heard that, I thought, oh no, is she going to be okay yeah. with her dogs? And there was a mm-hmm. lovely video of her with her two dogs yes. after the incident. So I'm glad that yes, she is able to still have that bond. Yes. And I saw that she wants to pursue a career in dog training. Oh, <laughs> I wow. I didn't yeah. see that part. Yeah, oh, that's that was, great. That was really... Uh, we all get started for interesting reasons. Yeah. That's imp- and impressive to see because after you suffer a, a traumatic dog attack, you know, usually nobody wants to have anything to do with dogs after that. So so kudos to her and, and, I, yeah. and I wish her well in her recovery for sure. Absolutely. So. We're going to take a short break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk more about uh, some of these more severe cases. So we'll be right back with Sarah. Hey, friends, it's me again, and I hope you are enjoying this episode. You may have figured out that something I deeply care about is helping dogs with aggression issues live less stressful, less confined, more enriched, and overall happy lives with their guardians. Aggression is so often misunderstood, and we can change that through continued education, like we receive from so many of the wonderful guests on this podcast. In addition to the podcast, I have two other opportunities for anyone looking to learn more about helping dogs with aggression issues, which include the Aggression in Dogs Master Course and the Aggression in Dogs Conference. If you want to learn more about the most comprehensive course on aggression taught anywhere in the world, head on over to aggressivedog.com and click on the Dog Pros tab and then the Master Course. The course gives you access to 23 modules on everything from assessment to safety to medical issues to the behavior change plans we often use in a number of different cases, including lessons taught by Dr. Chris Pockle, Kim Brophy, and Jessica Dolce. You also receive access to a private Facebook group with over a thousand of your fellow colleagues and dog pros all working with aggression cases. 
after you finish the course, you also gain access to private live group mentor sessions with me, where we practice working through a variety of cases together. And if you need CEUs, we've got you covered. We are approved for just about every major training and behavior credential out there. This is truly the flagship course offered on aggression in dogs and is perfect for pet pros that want to set themselves apart and take their knowledge and expertise to the next level or even for pet owners who are seeking information to help their own dog. And don't forget to join me for the third annual Aggression in Dogs conference, either in person or online from Providence, Rhode Island on September 30th through October 2nd, 2022. This year's lineup includes many of the amazing guests you might have heard on the podcast, including Suzanne Clothier, Jen Triok, Simone Mueller, Dr. Amber Batson, Kim Brophy, Karish Mawar, Laura Monaco Torelli, Dr. Simone Gabois, and many more. Head on over to aggressivedog.com and click on the conference tab to learn more about the exciting agenda on everything from advanced concepts and leash reactivity to using positive reinforcement to work with predatory behavior. And if you like to show off your support of the podcast, this year we teamed up again with the folks over at Wolf Culture for some catchy limited run conference merchandise. Wolf Culture is known for their witty, nerdy, and no-nonsense apparel that was created in 2019 to spread more awareness towards the use of humane training methods. Their apparel is here to help you start conversations, advocate for your animals, and rep force-free training in a different way. So don't forget to get your conference gear. It leaves the site after 12-31-2022. If you want 10% off your order, use the code BITEY10 at checkout. That's B-I-T-E-Y-1-0. All right, welcome back. I'm continuing on my very deep conversation here with Sarah Callnice, and we've been talking about severe cases. We just talked about a dog attack, a severe dog attack that happened in Texas, and one also that somebody brought to my attention when I was at a workshop. And I kind of want to continue on that because I think this is a very educational aspect for the listeners and kind of unpacking some of these more severe cases. So let's talk about another one. I I know you had uh, mentioned another case, but we didn't get into the details of it. Yeah. Um, So I had a number of years ago, uh, I had a frantic call from a person who lived about 45 minutes or an hour out of, uh, I live in Madison, Wisconsin. And um, so, you know, while there's resources here out in the country not so much they lived on in a, in a rural area they have this 1 year old rottweiler that they got from a breeder that was like so and so's guarding rottweilers that was mm-hmm. was the name of you know like bob's guarding rottweilers to me that that always is a bit of a red flag if if i'm doing pet selection with people right because we're talking about a pet in this case they wanted a pet Rottweilers are guarding breeds. Do we need to have the guarding supercharged in the already guarding breed? I don't know, right? So that was the one thing that she mentioned to me that right away, you know, little flag in my in my brain that this is from a place that I've I've heard of, and and the dogs have a very very they take their jobs very seriously, and basically what she told me is it's it's this was herself and four men in the household, so uh, her husband and three grown men, so like 18, 19, and 21. And what she said was, the dog is nipping. The dog is nipping at us, at all of us. We've all been nipped at by the dog. So as we talked about earlier, we kind of had to get to the bottom of what did that nipping mean? Well, what it was, was the dog had some pretty severe resource guarding issues. Anytime someone like fell asleep on the couch and the dog was lying at the base of the couch and had a bone and she'd be like, my arm fell off the couch. So of course he bit me. And she would take that as her fault that her arm fell off the couch while she was sleeping. But the reason that they called me in the first place was because they had had a fire caused by a small portable heater. And the fire chief had had to come out, the inspector and the insurance inspector had to come out and checked for safety and make sure everything was good. And the reason she was calling was not actually the bites and things were happening. The reason she called was because this dog could not be put behind a door. So I'm just going to say the dog's name was Wally. I I don't know what it, I don't remember what it was, but so Wally, um, she said, Wally can't be behind any closed door. He can't be crated. Um, If we close the front door on him, uh, he will break it down. 
to get out, to get at someone. It wasn't an separation anxiety. You will break it down to get at someone. They didn't have a fenced area. And they had a, a home for disabled children and adults directly across the road from them with this dog. So the issue and the reason they called was we have to have these people in our house and we don't know what to do with our dog because we don't want them to be exposed to our dog because we're not sure what he will do because he's never seen strangers. He was intact and he was a year old. So, <laughs> so I, I decided that it, she said that no one would come out there. No one was willing to come out and see them. So I drove out and I thought I had taken a very, very complete history. This was probably about a decade ago. Um, and I got there and I remember I called before I arrived. I knew he couldn't be put behind a door, but I said, you know, just kind of, I'm going to let you know that I'm coming. If somebody can sort of just stand and keep him occupied on the other side of the room, I'm going to come in. And, you know, if you have not, quick plug for Michael's aggression course, because he talks about such amazing things that I was like, oh, yes, I've done this for years. You know, how to safely go in. Fantastic course. Really, really great course if you're going to work with aggression. And so I remember that as I called her and I was driving up the driveway, she said, I, you know, I can't put him behind something. And I do want you to know that he this morning had an incident with two of our boys. And what that incident was, was that they were downstairs in their rec area. The boys were playing pool and one of them went too close to the dog's area, which they were all supposed to avoid. avoid. So this family really believed that the dog's area should be the dog's area and it was okay for the dog to guard their area and nobody should go near Wally's area and that, you know, he should still have all the bones and things like that. And you just didn't want to bother him when he had something. So they were trying to just accommodate the dog and all of the things he was doing. So the incident that happened was the boys are playing pool. One of them goes unintentionally too close to the dog's area, which was a laundry room. And the dog grabs the, I think it was the 18-year-old, by the pant leg and starts pulling him, drags him down and starts to pull him into the laundry room. The other boy starts to call for help while grabbing onto the 18-year-old and trying to pull him away from the dog, which makes the dog more aroused and more focused on pulling the 18-year-old into the room. So the other son runs upstairs and pretty soon all of the adult men in the household were downstairs and they were all bitten. So the the boy was finally gotten away from the dog, but everyone was bitten in the process except for the mother who stayed upstairs. So that happened about an hour before, while I was on the road, okay? So I thought, oh, I have to go in this house. <laughs> <laughs> what I should have thought yeah. it what I and what I know now, right? What I didn't think ten years ago was you need to be able to say, "I'm not set up for this. I can't go into this right now." But I think I was feeling, you know, that pressure that we all can that I've come all the way out here. They're they're relying on me. I I need to go in, and so I thought I understand dog body language enough that I feel like I can be okay with this dog. So I ended up going in. And uh, so I go in the front door and there's a, a, a dining table right against, right to the right of the door, but literally six inches. And so I go in and I keep my eyes down and I can see the dog out of sort of my peripheral vision off the top of my vision across the room. And I scooch very slowly with my body at an angle into the chair and sit down and just didn't really make any movements and kept my voice very calm and stable. And then everyone else sat down at their spot at the table and we had a conversation. I didn't try throwing the dog treats. I didn't do any of that. I just wanted to be, I am not confrontational. I am here. I mean you no harm and I will leave soon. <laughs> um, and it all, it all turned out really well as far as the consult, right? But it became a counseling situation about the potential danger of this dog, which they, they really didn't see. It really took a long time and a lot of talking for them to understand how serious what had happened that morning truly was. I mean, that could have ended much more like the cases we were just talking about mm -hmm. than, you know, everyone with a moderate bite, right? So, so what was the outcome of your conversation at that point? So we had about a 45 minute conversation that I stayed in there with them and watched him 
And, you know, he didn't seem particularly tense, but he was watching me the entire time. And his issues had, when we, when he, when we talked about it, what came to light after we built a little bit more trust was, and again, that's back to that trust building and you guys got to be open with me. Don't worry about it. I need to know. I need to know exactly what happened. That dog had had his first bite at eight weeks of age. No, seven weeks of age. I think they got him at six weeks, which was another factor. He had his first bite at six weeks of age. He was a year old, six or seven weeks of age. He was a year old and he had bitten 67 times Mm. in that year. They had not told me that. So, right, the initial call was all about our dog doesn't like to be behind barriers. We have people coming to the house. There are going to be barriers. How do we deal with this? And back then, I didn't do the long phone calls and talked about everything I could think that possibly could be playing a role. So I no longer think about what is it just that they're telling me is the issue, but also very importantly is what else could be an issue that I might see, which is so important to for everybody to ask in every case. And so what ended up happening was, you know, after I found out the number of bites and the severity of those bites and the very minimal amount that it would take for this dog to trigger was that I strongly recommended that he be euthanized. And that is a conversation that I hate to have. And that even when you deal with mostly aggression, you don't have to have it as much as I think some people think you do Mm -hmm. because it doesn't happen that often, right? So many times there's an aggression case. It can be worked with. The dog can be rehoned because their aggression is towards a certain thing, a child or something, but it's below a place where it can be kept safe. And and I have more to say about that, but I'll, I'll tangent. So if you want to remind me about what I think is movable to a different home. But basically with this dog, it was it was about he's not safe in your home and I don't think he'd be safe in anybody's home. And I really feel strongly that he needs to be euthanized. I think it took about three weeks and five or six hours of phone calls with the female owner of the household. And one of the things that I kept taking her back to was my last question at the dining table, which comes back to me now, is that I said to the table, how many of you are afraid of this dog? How many of you sitting here are afraid of your dog? And every male member of that household raised their hand. So the only person that didn't raise the hand was the mother. And she was attached in a very motherly way. And so we had a lot of conversations about your husband, your sons, they're all afraid of your dog. And they all live there. And they have a reason to be afraid. And I just don't see any other outcome. I offered other people for her to talk to, which I think is always a good idea to get other opinions because she was so torn about this. But at a certain point, you know, I can't make her euthanize her dog. She ended up making that decision. Uh, but she she did go ahead and get a second opinion of someone that I sent her to. And um, they had the same thought that I did. Uh, they didn't go in. That was just a, a phone consult. But um, yeah, it's sad, you know, but sometimes that is the solution. Going back, Sarah, 10 years ago, this happened about 10 years ago, you mentioned, thinking about how you felt then versus now. How did that? How did you feel after that consult? What were your thoughts and feelings at that time versus maybe if you were to experience the same, having to, to help a client navigate that decision now? Mm-hmm. I wish I could say it's completely different, but when something like this happens, I feel a tremendous amount of guilt and uh, imposter syndrome, which Michael and I have talked a little bit about, where, you know, it doesn't matter how many, some, like I did Michael's class this year as aggression course. It's fantastic. It doesn't matter that I've been doing this for 20 plus years. I still want to make sure that I am doing all of the things that I can to know everything that I can. But I felt like I don't know enough. What if it's me? I always go through that. I'm not God. Who am I to make it? Why is it my job to tell these people, right? I go through all of this. I think I cried the entire time I was going home. I think, what if I'm wrong? A lot of that then, a lot of that. And for weeks, I knew I had to have the conversation with her as a professional because I knew in my heart that this dog wasn't safe. But I still felt like, what if there's something I don't know? What if I could fix that dog? And so when people, you know, sometimes people give a behavior consultant a really hard time about having to bring up this conversation with people, you know, so-and-so told you to kill your dog kind of thing. And 
I really hope people understand that it is the most difficult part of this job. I wouldn't do this if I didn't absolutely love dogs. I would save everyone if I could. I've run a rescue for 20 years. I would save them all. I was that kid who would save every animal. But sometimes they're too dangerous for society. And you need to think about the fact that, do you want me to say to that person, oh, I think as long as you keep this dog out in the country and you do this and that, it's going to be fine. And let's say it's a dog-dog aggression case. And then you're walking your dog down the street. I've said that dog is okay to be in society and then they kill your dog or they maul your child or, you know, you're not going to maybe feel so grateful that I let the guilt take over and didn't make the recommendation that I thought was the right recommendation to make. I think what's different now is that I am much more secure in that if I am going to make that decision, I know now that my wobbling, because I felt like Back then, if a client was very, very unsure about it, I might sort of wobble a little bit with them and go, well, maybe if we, and then I'd be like, no, and I'd, I'd come back to my original decision. But that wobbling was never good for the client, was never helpful for the client. So what I really needed to learn over the years and have learned over the years is if that's a recommendation that I'm going to make, I am going to make that recommendation. I'm going to be solid and firm in that recommendation. And I'm going to say, you know, you can see other people and get their recommendations, but this is what I think and this is why I think it and why I think it's important. And if there was any other way to do this that I knew after 20 years, client, I would tell you, believe me, I would tell you, but I want to keep you safe and I want to keep everybody else safe. And, you know, that helps clients a lot. I still have guilt. You know, will we ever know enough? Am I missing something? But then I try to make sure that I'm doing as much education as I can so that that doesn't happen, you know? And I think it's it's healthy to some degree to second guess our thoughts on that and that kind of permanent decision that can happen in these cases. And just to back up a little bit too, I was thinking that a good exercise for trainers that are getting into these conversations or new to these conversations with clients to help balance our perspectives is to read about the stories that we were just talking about. When those stories come up, read what happened and kind of think about, you know, as best you can with the limited information sometimes, but think about if that was your client that you worked with and then their dog goes on to do something to that degree. Um, how is that going to impact your decision-making process in the future? And I think it's just a good exercise because I, I don't wish that on anybody. I don't wish, of course, anybody's clients' dogs to bite anybody else ever again, or have any, certainly any kind of severe maulings like that. But I find that that's a, it's very useful to kind of think how much are your decisions going to impact the future of other people's lives and animals that are out there. So another thing that yeah. I've, I've done over the years is I think about what I want to live with this dog. So as a professional with the experience that I have, mm -hmm. do I think that I could live with this dog and it would be safe? Right. And in the cases where I'm recommending euthanasia, that answer is always no. And when I have doubts, I think about that question again, and I think, no, there's no way. E even mm -hmm. with what I consider the best management, management is going to fail at some point in time. I mean, you get not fail completely. I don't mean, you know, but there will be little hiccups in management. And so if you're dealing with a dog that absolutely won't be safe yeah. and you're saying, well, let's try and manage it. And then one mistake happens. So I say with the clients, a very helpful question is, are you afraid of your dog? And then I, that's where we really go back to that rapport building. Now I spend much more time rapport building. I cry with clients and that's me. And that might not be you, you know, that might not be some trainers out there, but if you're that kind of person that truly has those feelings, sharing that your grief with the client about what they're going through is helpful. I share the story of the dog that I personally had to give up because of dog-dog aggression. And that does help them a lot, knowing that I am not some cold outsider coming in and just saying, this is what you need to do. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. Yeah. Do you have other things that you do? You know, I, I, it's a general theme of the show. You know, I'm always talking about empathy and kindness and making sure that that client has that opportunity to express their thoughts and their feelings to me. And that's not going to come unless you show empathy and kindness. So that's really kind of my 
small <laughs> addition to what you were just talking about. You know, I'd, I'd love to talk too also about, I, I'm sure a lot of listeners are thinking right now, okay, so what variables do you assess? So you're talking, you know, Mike and Sarah are talking about difficult, severe cases, but what are ones that are sort of in that gray area? Um, and what variables to assess? Because many of us, we start out learning about, you know, uh, when we talk about that word severe, the first, my, our mind goes to bite scales or severity of bites, but that's certainly not the only variable in a case. You know, I could think of a, a classic example. You know, I've, I had a case a few summers ago. It was a large dog that killed a small dog. Now, many of you probably think, oh, that's pretty severe. You know, the death of another animal. That's, that's finality. That's the small dog owner and me just went and completely perked up. (laughs) Right. And it's, and so immediately you're thinking, oh, I don't take those kind of cases or what we consider level six on the, the, um, Shannon bite scale. And it's for me, though, I have to know more about the case. And so so I took the client. I'm like, okay, so your dog killed another dog. All right, not good, but let me come over and see what we can talk about. Turns out this dog was great with all other dogs on the planet and had a history of socializing well with other dogs. It's just that this one small dog, as the owner was just trying to walk, and this was like their neighbor right across the street, and so they had very limited options. They're just trying to take their large dog for a walk on leash. And this small dog was always off leash. It would come charging up to this small dog and attacking this large dog all the time. And so there Context was a very matters. clear <laughs> reason. And then finally, the, the, the large dog was like, you know what? I've had, had enough of you. And actually, you know, bit the do- other dog back. But because of the size differential, it was a, it was ended up uh, being a fatal bite to that small dog, tragically. That's that's an obvious like extreme case, but sometimes we have those middle cases. You have a level two, level three bite history, but maybe it's been just once, or maybe it's thirty times. Um, so let's talk more about that. You know, what other variables? You know, so we talk about bite history, we talk about the size of dog, the breed of dog, the the owner's management skills. What do you what do you see? What else do you evaluate? I mean, it, it's so much of it is context and uh, the context of you know where do they live and what is. The problem. Okay. So I remember this case that I had. It was a resource guarding case. And I always say to people, well, resource guarding cases, you know, if you're going to have a dog behavior problem, let it be resource guarding because <laughs> I consider that often to be one of the most workable types of things because they typically guard, you know, their food bowl, mm-hmm. some toy, you know, things that you can manage or you can manage the environment. And, you know, I find that counter conditioning work for resource guarding can work very well. It's pretty easy to do. So I like those cases. But then I had this one (laughs) where (laughs) the dog guarded one thing, and that was Kentucky Fried Chicken wings, the the wing bones, Mm -hmm. right? You think, why is that a problem, Sarah? (laughs) What is the problem? The problem is that the people lived two houses from a Kentucky Fried Chicken with a drive-thru. And so... And he's, and this dog was, I use a, a resource guarding scale that goes one to 10. This dog was a solid eight. He would guard the entire area around mm-hmm. a Kentucky Fried Chicken bone. I mean, it might've been other bones, right? But what people would do is they would go through the drive-thru, they would eat their wings and they would throw them out the window. So we tried to scope out a, an area around their house where we could find no wings. We couldn't find one. People are messy. They throw those wings <laughs> all over the place. We could not find a place for these people to walk. And, you know, so I could have said, well, you can take your dog and drive them a few miles away every time you want to take them out. But they were even ending up with like wings in their backyard. And the dog wouldn't just guard the item from strangers, but he would guard that item from the family. They were having kids, actually twins on the way. And, you know, it was either, okay, do we close the Kentucky Fried Chicken? It's probably not going to happen. Do you move? I mean, truly, you know, are you in a position to move? They own their house. They were not in a position to move. That's a situation where, is it workable? Yes. Is it workable in this context? No. No. So um, that was a situation where we then have to recommend, you know, rescue, It was a mixed breed dog and unfortunately had a bite history. And so, you know, then there's all of these complications on top of it. I mean, if you've got a dog with a somewhat serious issue and a person who's in a position to work with that dog, who has a relationship with that dog, that's very, very different than if you've got 
a dog who then ends up, because the context just can't be made to work, to go to not having a home. Um, the woman I work with has right now, a, if anybody would like, a two-and-a-half-year-old chihuahua that has some pretty significant issues that we can't find a home for, who's temporarily living with a girl that I mentor, you know, to let Michael know. <laughs> <laughs> because it's those dogs, if they don't already have a home and it's a pretty significant issue, right? Even when it was what we require is that you don't live near a Kentucky fried chicken. Um, but still the resource guarding was so severe, was such, you know, level eight is so severe that that did not end well. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, such an important point. Context does matter. You know, when I think about context, as I'm, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, all right, what about the generalized garters where it doesn't matter where you are in your home? The dog thinks you're going to take something away almost all the time, just like leaning over to pick up something you dropped off the floor. The right. dog's like, what are you going to take from me? Cause that usually, that motion usually means you're about to take something valuable away from me. So it becomes super generalized. It doesn't matter where you are in the home. And That's the inconsistency I, when people say, you know, because one of the one of the questions people will ask right away is, um, you know, what what do you think? Right. So we have that initial conversation and right away yeah. they want to know, what yeah. do you think? What do you think? Can you work with this? Mm -hmm. Can you fix it? And I always have to say, you know, I, I don't know. I, there's so much more I need to see. I need to see the dog. I need to figure it out. But when they ask that question, so much is about is just about the context of what you're going to do. Yeah, it's just it's it's so different when a dog has a home than when they don't have a home. And the context plays such a huge role. Yeah, I was just chatting with another guest about the differences between dogs that are owned by somebody that's already has a home versus a shelter or a rescue dog. You know, the options are much different and much, much more limited often with the shelter and rescue dogs. So, okay, yeah. consistency, right? So they're asking yep. if things are going to be okay. One of the things that I look for in when I'm talking to them about that first time is give me a dog any day of the week who the description is when my dog sees. Any man, any and every man in any and every context, they act like Cujo, right? So does am I too old or does everybody know who Cujo is? The stereotypical <laughs> it's a universal okay, word. That, yeah. that, you know, full on, nobody's gonna doubt that that mm -hmm. dog is aggressive, right? So they're showing all the signs and they do it in very specific contexts and they do it all the time. For me, that prognosis is so much better than the dog who is aggressive towards some men some of the time and then sometimes not. And maybe we can figure out what the trigger is. Maybe we can't. That's part of what I love about this job is the detective work. And that really excites me to try and figure out what is the trigger? What is happening? I love that part of this job. And so when I'm talking to a client, I will say general things like, your dog appears to be very consistent in what their triggers are. And that is going to help us because we can tell whether they're making progress. On the flip side, if somebody's talking about aggression towards children, mm -hmm. even if it's happens towards every child, right? I tell them right away, we're never going to be able to say your dog is cured. I'm never going to be able to put a stamp of approval. Sarah says cured because the only way we can do that is, excuse me, can I borrow your child? Because I don't have any human ones. So can I borrow your child so that I can have them just walk up and say hello to this dog that has a history of biting children or growling at them or snapping at them and just see what happens. So we know whether the behavior modification worked. Can't do that. So, right, that's a whole nother, I mean, it's just all, it's all those little moving parts that determine success or failure. Yeah. And you mentioned the detective work that goes into it, which I, I also love, you know, I, I like the more um, tricky cases or the complex ones where you're unpacking all the behavior and all the variables involved. And, you know, it's kind of the love for this career and, and working the cases is you get to see new things, even if you've been doing it for a long time. And But the nice thing about seeing those new things is you'll be able to apply what you've learned previously in other similar cases to right. that particular case. So go, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say the upside is um, I had a client a few nights ago and they were so worried. They love this dog so much. His name's Theo. They thought that, that it was going to be a horrible prognosis. Um, and he came in, we saw each other at my office. He came in frightened of everything. And within two hours, he was completely waggy, relaxed body, no problem. Sun environmental changes were no longer an issue. Some the next day, everything was fine. 
he's he's going to be a best case scenario. And to be able to sit there and say at the end of a consult, you're you're going to be fine. This is yes. going to be absolutely fine. Yes, I mean, it's a great feeling. Yes, that it sure is when we can make reasonable looks into the future for clients, you know, peace of mind. And right. based on our experience again, that is, yes, it is very reinforcing for us as well. So where can people find you and what are you up to next in your career here? So um, Instagram is my most active. Uh, it's Sarah Colnai's Blue Dog on Instagram. You can always email me at sarah at bluedogtraining.com. It's Sarah with an H. And um, so the biggest thing is that language of dogs, which I never even intended to be a product, which is a whole nother story, um, is still a bestseller. Many years later, I am older and heavier than I was in that video. So please keep that in mind if you ever see me in person. But it is now streaming at Dogwise and Am I Safe will be streaming starting in April. So both of those products will be available no longer on, I mean, they will be available on DVD, but they will be also available streaming. And uh, I'm going to be speaking at APDT Australia next year. So please, if you're one of the Aussie listeners, um, watch for me there. Uh, And APDT Mexico uh, next year. So yeah, I've got a few things coming up. I'm really excited to start getting back on the road and doing seminars as I'm sure. I mean, I don't know that you ever stop traveling, but I, I, there's nothing like a live audience for me. So I miss that. Yeah. So that's a little bit of what I'm doing. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'll be sure to link all of those links in the show notes for everybody. And I hope to see you. One of the conferences, I'm sure we'll run into each other. So thanks again for joining me for this episode. Thanks, Michael. I I loved it. Great. Thanks for joining me in this conversation with Sarah. I always enjoy chatting with these amazing guests I learned so much from. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to AggressiveDog.com for more information about helping dogs with aggression. From the Aggression in Dogs Master Course to webinars from world-renowned experts and even an annual conference, we have options for both pet pros and pet owners to learn more about aggression in dogs. Thanks for joining me for the bitey end of the dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to aggressivedog.com or the looseleashacademy.com for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences, all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues. And don't forget, the Aggression in Dogs conference will be happening from October 22nd to 24th with 12 amazing speakers, all streaming from a television studio in Chicago. It's going to be a truly unique event in 2021.